Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. And today is my birthday, my 68th birthday to be precise, so I am taking the day off and dialing up an encore presentation of my conversation from this past February with UW professor Francine Hirsch, the author of Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. Published by Oxford University Press, it is an award-winning reappraisal of the trial that became the pivot point between World War II and the Cold War. On November 20, 1945, the United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union opened the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, Germany, putting on trial 22 Nazi leaders and seven organizations charged with conspiring in a crime against peace, planning and waging wars of aggression, participating in war crimes, and committing crimes against humanity. On September 30 and October 1st, 1946, judges from the four countries announced their verdicts. Twelve of the accused, including Reich Marshal Hermann Goering and German Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop, were sentenced to death by hanging. Seven received prison sentences ranging from 10 years to life, and three were acquitted. Four organizations, the Leadership Corps of the Nazi Party, the Secret State Police, or Gestapo, the Protective Squadron, or SS, and the Security Service, or SD, were found criminal, but only for what they did after the start of the war on September 1st, 1939. Three organizations, the Reich Cabinet, the Stormtroopers, or SA, and the General German Staff and High Command were found not guilty. In the collective memory of the West, these Nuremberg trials, the only four power trials, were first and foremost an American exercise of finding truth and dispensing justice. Chief U.S. Prosecutor Robert H. Jackson, on leave from his job as Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, was both star and director with able prosecutors from Great Britain in friendly support. The French were only marginally relevant and the Soviets well, they were at best an annoyance and at worst an embarrassment whose obvious and overwhelming conflicts threatened the very legitimacy of the entire exercise. But what if that Nuremberg moment was just a myth and our memory is not of the whole story? What if notwithstanding their own dealings with Hitler and their own war atrocities, the Soviets were actually essential to the tribunal happening at all? What if, notwithstanding their own show trials, it was a Soviet lawyer who came up with the fundamental breakthrough in international law underpinning the entire tribunal? Those are the questions that Professor Hirsch asks and answers brilliantly in this landmark account, for which she has already received the American Society for International Law's 2021 Certificate of Merit for a preeminent contribution to creative scholarship. It is no surprise that Fran Hirsch has produced such a work of scholarship and style. Her first book, Empire of Nations, Ethnographic Knowledge and the Making of the Soviet Union, received awards from the American Historical Association, the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies, and the Council for European Studies. As you can tell, Professor Hirsch specializes in Russian and Soviet history, modern European history, comparative empires, the history of human rights, and Russian-American engagement. 
She also has a very healthy 4.4 rating on Rate My Professor. It is a <laughs> pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Professor Francine Hirsch. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me here. And I feel like speechless now after such a lovely introduction. And also thank you for this such a wonderful summary of some of the main issues that I went to the archives with. So I, I appreciate that so much. It was great narrative nonfiction, really well-written. It's, it's really engrossing and you should be very proud and very pleased with your accomplishment here. 75 years later, why does the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg matter? That's the big question, isn't it? Why does the IMT, why does Nuremberg still matter? I think it matters for so many reasons and there are so many ways to get at that question. It matters in our current political climate, I think, right now, in part because people are still invoking Nuremberg. People are still talking about the Nuremberg trials, whether they're talking about having a trial of, of the Trump administration or whether we're talking about the current International Criminal Court and the United States' relationship to it, whether we're talking about trials with whether China should be tried, crimes against humanity against the Uyghurs. So many issues today, Nuremberg comes up again and again and again. One of the things I think when we when we talk about Nuremberg, of the way that we think about Nuremberg in the popular consciousness, we really do have a, a somewhat simplified version of the story. Again, this story about American leadership, the story about Robert Jackson, it's again, you know, America leading the way. And I think that the real story of the Nuremberg, or I think the richer story of the Nuremberg, one that brings in the Soviet Union, it's not just about bringing in the Soviet Union, but it's a story of international cooperation. And I think that that's what I, I really want us to hold on to in some ways, that when we think about, again, just at this current moment, as we have a new administration looking to join the other nations of the world, it's not always easy to cooperate with other governments that are very different from us. But sometimes it's the ability of governments to put differences aside and even to like hold their noses, you know, to, to cooperate in the aim of something higher. I think that that's, that's one of the important lessons. But again, if we're going to keep invoking Nuremberg, I think we need to know what, what really happened in that courtroom and what really happened in that city at the end of the war. And not just in the courtroom, but how we got to the courtroom. And as I alluded in the, in the introduction, Soviet participation in Nuremberg was to say the least, complicated. They had had a non-aggression pact and secret protocols with Germany. They engaged in scripted secret show trials. They massacred 20,000 Polish officers in intelligentsia in the Katyn Forest in 1940. But would there have even been an international military tribunal without them? I don't think that there would have been, or it would have been something so different that it's hard to imagine. One of the things I write about in the book is how it was the Soviets who were really the ones who were out in front, really during the darkest days of the war in October, 1942, Molotov, Soviet foreign minister, can makes a public announcement that, um, that they wanna hold a special international tribunal to bring Nazi leaders to justice and inviting all interested governments to be involved in that process. And before that, in the spring of 1942, the Soviets appealed to their own international lawyers to, to think of this question of, to study the question of reparations and how it relates to international law, and to study this question of whether the leaders of a state can be held criminally responsible for war crimes and for atrocities. And the reason that they're the ones who are out in front is because they've experienced the horrors of Nazi occupation in the war. And so, so that 
that's part of what pushes them to think about this question. Initially, during the war, the Americans and the British, they're very skeptical about the idea of, of a trial, of an international tribunal, for reasons that are understandable, right? They're concerned about retribution against American forces. The British, they, they say, I mean, some of those discussions are incredibly interesting, where British leaders and British diplomats say, like a trial, like what, what the, that the crimes of the Nazi leaders, like one of the British leaders says, the crimes of the Nazi leaders are so black. How could we have a trial? It's so clear that, that they should be hung, really. So again, this idea of a trial, it's something that the Soviets, they're comfortable with for, for all kinds of reasons that, that we can talk more about. They have certain ideas of what a trial will, will demonstrate. But then it, again, it's, it's towards the end of the war. It's after, it's clear that, um, well, it's at the very end when it's clear that there's going to be victory. That's when the US government becomes to get more interested in this question of a tribunal. And by that point, some of these ideas of the Soviet jurist, Aaron Chayinin have traveled. There have been these international discussions, this term crimes against peace that Chayinin had coined, that's now being talked about by the United Nations War Crimes Commission in London. There's a big push from the Soviets early on that helped really set the stage in some ways for what will happen later. Fill in a bit about Aaron Trainin and his book, The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites, and how that laid the basis for some of the really fundamental advances in international law reflected at Nuremberg. So Aaron Chayinin, who was a Soviet um, criminal lawyer, he wrote a report for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He was one of the lawyers who responded to this call for thinking about the inter international law and reparations. And in this book, The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites, he made a number of arguments. First of all, he argued that Nazi leaders could and should be tried for a criminal conspiracy right, the leaders of the state. He also argued that the crime of planning and launching wars of aggression, now wars of aggression as wars of conquest as opposed to wars of defense, that those kinds of wars were criminal and that they should be, they should and you know, could be tried as crimes against peace using that term. He also argued that this defense of superior orders, a defense I was just following orders, right? That that was not a legitimate defense and that that should not be allowed to be used. And, and that's just some of the ideas that he put together in this report for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs then starts to circulate his ideas through articles, through radio broadcasts, and then ultimately in this book, also called The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites, which gets translated into many languages and again, makes it across Europe, makes it to the United States and has a fundamental role then in these later discussions about war crimes, partly because there had been talk about this question of, is a war of aggression criminal? Can you tr try another country? Can you try leaders for launching an aggressive war? And American lawyers and British lawyers had been talking about this idea and discussing it, but they had agreed that this was what was considered ex post facto law retroactive law, something kind of after the fact. Now, the thing was, is that the International Military Tribunal was a four power tribunal that brought in the ideas of four different governments. And so Trienin's idea of that you could in fact do this since he was coming from one of the countries that particip was participating in the trial, that was a way in for this idea to then make it into the framework of the trials as well. And did the 
Americans and the British ultimately think that that was their idea to begin with? Well, yeah, well, it's interesting. It's one of those things. So so I, I, this question of origins, I feel like is incredibly tricky. I, I think it is indisputable that crimes against peace was Trayin's term. The fact that everyone was talking about the fact that perhaps wars of aggression should be tried. Um, yes, I mean, the Americans later um, kind of, I don't know if they took credit for it or they got credit for it, but it, that has gone down in the popular narrative as something that the, the Americans um, had contributed. It was interesting, again, doing the archival research for this, because one of the really fun things about archival research is that you can, you can trace how ideas travel, and I just love that. So from being able to be in the Soviet archives at the Academy of Sciences and to see these discussions of Trainin's book and this discussions of the idea of crimes against peace, and then to see how Trainin's book is then discussed at the United Nations War Crimes Commission in London, and then to see how it's also discussed in the White House. And that to me was, is really exciting. And Murray Bernays, who's the American who typically gets credit for coming up with some of this. So Bernays' archive is in Wyoming. And I was able to look at documents in the Bernays archive where, um, where you know, Trianon's materials are all there. And so you know, Bernays had read them too. What problems did the four powers have in setting the basic principles of the trial and drafting an indictment? That's a really interesting question as well. So it's interesting when people think about an indictment. I also wonder, before I worked on this project, I don't know what I thought about when I thought about like an indictment, right? It's, the, it's a list of the charges, right? But the thing was that the Soviets and the French had won, they had, they had more of a civil law system and the Americans and the British had more of a common law system. And in the Soviet and, and French system, an indictment can also contained all the evidence. Right? It contained the whole laying out of the case. And in, in containing the laying out of the case, it also contained um, a whole history of everything that had happened before. Everything that had happened in the war, the kind of the major highs and lows and points. So, so the indictment is, a, in this case at Nuremberg, it's a massive document, right? It's kind of the size of a novella. And then there's all of these attachments to it with, with all of this evidence. And so in the writing of the indictment, the, all kinds of things come into play that are going to be essential, like just really big moments later in the trial itself. Because first of all, it's a list of it's a list of the charges, and the Soviets decide to use the indictment to blame um, a crime that they themselves had committed, the Katyn massacre, to blame it on the Nazis, and so they insist on including this crime in the war crime section. And so that becomes a really big issue. The other issue with the indictment is that, again, if you're telling the history of the war, it's also a question of, you know, what do you include? Like, what don't you include? How do you talk about the Munich Pact of 1938, in which the French and the British appeased Hitler, right, and handed over to Sudetenland? How do you talk about the non-aggression pact? the Hitler-Stalin pact, Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, right? It's called all those things. How do you talk about that? And the Soviets were very concerned about this in the Soviet documents, in the correspondence, you see the Soviets are worried that they, they wanna make sure that this does not get talked about as a springboard. That's actually the term that they use as a springboard for the invasion of Poland. And we're not even talking yet about the secret protocols. This is just even how you describe the actual pact itself. 
And so these deliberations about what gets included in the indictment, they're very, very tense. And you know, the, the Americans and the British, to talk a little about the Katyn issue, they, they try to convince the Soviet chief prosecutor, Roman Rudenko, just like, like, why are you going down this road? Like, why do you want to do this? They suspect that the Soviets are guilty. There's not enough evidence that they have, again, the people who are in Nuremberg, the Americans and British in Nuremberg, to feel convinced of this, but they have their suspicions. But they say that, you know, it's they know it's been a political hot potato. So regardless of whether the Soviets did it or whether the Germans did it, like, do you really want to bring it up in the trial? And Rudenko tells them, like, I have no choice. You know, my hands are tied. And there are a couple of issues that come up. And at a certain point, he says to them, look, if, if you really want to change these things, I'm going to have to go back to, to Moscow. I'm going to have to talk to Stalin. This is going to take weeks. And it's going to hold the whole thing up. And at that point, they just kind of give in on this. And, I, you know, interesting, like my heart kind of breaks for Jackson a little bit on this one, because, again, I, one of the wonderful sources I have from the Library of Congress are Jackson's um, diaries from this period. And, you know, there's the indictment, the indictment is called the Indictment Act, right? The Indictment Act gets published the day after. Jackson gets intelligence from U.S. Army intelligence with really with what they're basically there. They're saying, like, look, it really looks like the Soviets have done it. At that point, it's too late. It's in there. Did Rudenko even know the true facts of either the secret protocols or who was responsible for Katyn? I mean, did, didn't the Stalinist system of secrecy and paranoia and, and centralization keep important facts from the prosecutors? Yes, this is this is one of one of the really interesting things about doing this research was trying to keep track for myself of who knew what when. It's crazy. And and yes, I mean there are these moments and again the Soviet archives are really wonderful for this because there are in the foreign ministry archive there are all these telegrams and there's a moment when they're in, in London, um, when Rudenko's in London and, you know, again, like working on the Indictment Act, working on some of these critical documents. And there's an informant in London, a Soviet diplomat, who writes home, he writes Andrei Vyshinsky, um, who um, was the deputy foreign minister and many other things. And he says, um, look, I think we have a problem because, you know, Rudenko doesn't know about the secret protocols. He doesn't even really know some of the details about Soviet-German relations. And this is going to come up in the trial. And like, say, nobody thought to tell Rudenko. And the reason that they didn't think to tell Rudenko is again, this is, again, I mean, just think back to what we were talking about earlier. The Soviets were out in front arguing for a trial, for a tribunal. They had their own history of trials and tribunals where they expected the prosecution to completely control the script. And so it didn't make any sense to them that the secret protocols would enter into the discussions at all. So, you know, why tell Rudenko? But this is the crazy part. I mean, there's lots of crazy parts here. But, you know, Ribbentrop, who was the co-signer of this, he's one of the defendants and he's been in American and British custody. I'm so, you know, at a certain point, they should have thought like, yeah, maybe this is going to come up. So, um, so that's really interesting. And, and there's a point in um, November, shortly after the trials start, where it becomes clear because one of the defense attorneys, Alfred Seidel, the, the attorney for Hans Frank, he 
asks the tribunal if he can introduce evidence about the secret protocols that he claims to have dug up. And at that point, every, you know, the Soviets are in a panic. And Andrei Vyshinsky, who's in Moscow, and one of his jobs is supposed to be to, he's actually, the Soviets have two secret commissions to oversee the Soviet delegation, and he's the head of one of them. And so that's when he makes a trip to he makes a trip to Nuremberg and he has a whole bunch of secret meetings with the Soviet judge and the Soviet prosecutors. And at that point, they starts to fill them in on information about things. But but this is another big, but I don't even think they know about Kachin at that point. So that's the other thing too, that there are certain members of the Soviet delegation who know the truth and there are others who don't. We're talking with Professor Francine Hirsch. Her book is Soviet Judgment Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. In addition to the lack of full communication, how much were the Soviet prosecutors hampered just by the the centralization and how everything had to go up ultimately to Molotov and Stalin and that they didn't have enough translators and that they were wearing shabby clothes and just, you know, just day after day, the what it was like to be on the Soviet team in Nuremberg up against Jackson and the others. Yeah, thank you. I, I This is one of the things that I found really, really interesting. Again, I, in, in the book, I, I kept trying to like imagine like what would it have been like for these members of the Soviet delegation to be in Nuremberg. And one thing I just want to remind people of, again, that how much the Soviets have lost in the war, right? We now know it's like something like 27 million people, the amount of devastation that's been done to their country, right? So they're there with a very serious purpose. They want the world to know what they have suffered. And yet, there's a way in which the Soviets, especially at first, and they get the hang of things later. And I should also say that by the time they, they present their case, they do like everyone agrees they've done a fabulous job with their presentations, but that's not for a while. And especially initially, there's a way in which things play a little bit out like a comedy of errors for a number of reasons, right? As you've mentioned, they don't have enough qualified translators and interpreters. And the reason they don't have enough qualified translators and interpreters was that to speak foreign languages in Stalin's Soviet Union, especially during a certain period of the late 1930s and around the time of the war, was incredibly dangerous. German speakers were frequently arrested and shot. And so there, there are, again, the German speakers that they are, are people who they're very, very trusted but there aren't enough of them and they're struggling. And the thing is also to be fair, initially they think that the Americans are gonna provide all the translators. The French think that too. And the Americans, they, they, the Americans don't have enough translators. And so the Soviets kind of get the memo on that one late and then they're really scrambling. And so that's, that's an issue. The other thing is, again, the Soviets, again, they send to Nuremberg, especially when it comes to um, public relations, they send amazing writers, amazing political cartoonists. One of the most talented documentary filmmakers, Roman Carmen, they send members of the cultural elite. They're taking this very seriously. And the correspondence that they send, they do an incredible job of writing about the trials for the Soviet press and for the world press. But there are certain things that they've never really had to think about doing before. They don't know how to hold press conferences, for example. And so that's one of the things that they have to kind of get the hang of, and it really hampers them at first. They're also used to keeping information you know, very secret. 
And so again, they're reluctant to even share information about the, their case that would be interesting for foreign correspondents to cover, right? Because they're, they're not allowed to release certain interesting documents. And the thing about the clothing that you mentioned, that's one of the things, again, that kind of, um, it just, it's sort of heartbreaking. The other reason that we know all of this is because the Soviets have a whole number of informants in Nuremberg, and, and even some of the journalists are working as informants who are writing these very detailed reports back to Soviet leaders about everything that's happening there. And some of the things that they talk about are just the facts of just the daily struggles. And they talk about the fact that the, the female members of the Soviet delegation, the stenographers, the typists, that, um, that their clothes are really shabby. And it's not just that their clothes are shabby, but they say in, in, in that the Americans and the British are making fun of them. And that's just really, so, um, so we get that and then stories of them then shopping on the black market to try to get more clothes. So, so that's some of the issues. The issue of centralization, that's a big one. That's a really big one because the Soviets had not one, but two secret commissions in Moscow that were supposed to kind of oversee the Soviet delegation from afar and oversee the Soviet case. And so the Soviet judges, the Soviet prosecutors, the members of the Soviet delegation, they're supposed to check in you know, via Moscow about every decision, really decisions large and decisions small. You know, and how are they supposed to do this? So here they are, again, Nuremberg is in the American zone. So, um, so they're in the American zone. They're then transmitting messages to Berlin and then the messages go from Berlin to Moscow. And then once they get to Moscow, they go, as you say, like up the chain of command. So, and sometimes Molotov signs up on, off on things and edits documents. Occasionally Stalin does too. And then they go you know, back down and back to Nuremberg. And this takes time. Documents are sometimes lost. Like there are a couple of occasions where documents are lost and the Soviets are just like, ah, just, you know, like floundering, like, like what do we do? And then even when they get information back, sometimes it's taken so long that um, it's like the matter's over. But, but think about what this looks like to everyone else, right, in Nuremberg. And you get this in some of the American memoirs. It's really interesting. The American memoirs talk about how the Soviets are stalling, they're taking so much time, like what's going on. Some of them have a hunch, right? But what's going on is, again, just like back to Moscow, like waiting. And, you know, sometimes they'll communicate by phone or, or by, you know, but, but some of the, when these documents have to be looked over, that takes a while. There's, um, there's, there's really the judgment. I'll just say a word about that because I think that's, that was one of the amazing archival finds. Again, just like the, the thrill of seeing these documents, right? Part of why we know about all of this is because the, the Ministry of the Archive of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, there's like the Vyshinsky file and the Molotov file and like the secret parts of the file that include like all of these documents. And they're just like amazing to, to read and to see again how things got marked up and passed around. So the judgment. After, you know, all the evidence is heard and all the witnesses are heard. Yona Nikachenko, who's the Soviet judge, he has an assistant, Alex, um, Alexander Volchkov, right? So, so the judgment deliberations are supposed to be taking place in secret. And the American books about this talk a great deal about how 
how it was in secret, how not only that, like that they would burn the trash every afternoon to make sure that no documents got released to the public. That again, so these are you know deliberations about like what should the verdicts be, deliberations about the the wording of the judgment, deliberations about the sentencing, right? The Soviet judge manages to sneak out a draft copy of the judgment and send it back to Moscow. And I know this because it is in the Moscow archives <laughs> and <laughs> with all kinds of notations all over it. And then again, it takes quite a while for it to, to go through all the necessary people. Then they send back from Moscow, like a 12 or 14 page telegram with details about this is not acceptable. Like every single defendant like should be hung. Like this is not acceptable. Okay, if you have to give in, you can give in here and you can negotiate on this point. This is not acceptable. You have to make the British judge, Jeffrey Lawrence, understand that the people will not stand for a lenient judgment, right? And just like on and on and on. And you know, th these are marching orders basically back to Nikachenko. By the time he gets them, not that he would have been able to do anything with them at that point, right? But by the time he gets them also, it's it's really too late. And so he's just floundering and trying to negotiate as best he can, like knowing that these orders are coming. And um, eventually Nikachenko writes um, a dissent. Well, I shouldn't say, Nikachenko puts in a defense that's written in part, you know, back in Moscow. That inability to be flexible, that expectation that the marching orders are going to come, that really, the judgment is just one example of that, but that really leaves the Soviet delegation at a disadvantage throughout the entire trial, and even, and even in the deliberations before. The, the bit about the, the judgment really shows how Jackson was right to be suspicious of, of the Soviets. And, oh, and yeah. <laughs> turning to one of the most important and best things that the Soviets did. We are taping this conversation on January 28th, the day after International Holocaust Remembrance Day. How much was the world's awareness of the Holocaust advanced by the evidence which the Soviets produced at trial? I would say that it was significantly advanced by that evidence. I think one of the really interesting things is I think that that has still gone a bit underappreciated in the sense that among Soviet historians for a long time and among others in general, there was a sense that the Soviets suppressed information about like what we now talk about as the Holocaust. There are a couple of reasons for this. I think in part because in the earlier Soviet war crimes trial, like the Kharkov trial of in 1943, the Soviets would refer to all of the victims as peaceful Soviet citizens, even when the victims were almost all Jews, right? And so there was a sense, again, and, and again, the Soviets, in terms of their narrative, it was a narrative of the suffering of the Soviet people. And so the, the, the Jews would show up as part of that, but the emphasis would be on the Soviet, on the suffering of the people as a whole. The other reason is that after Nuremberg, there is an anti, quote unquote, anti-cosmopolitan campaign, an anti-Semitic campaign in the Soviet Union. And actually, a, a number of people, um, who are involved in the trial get caught up in that because some of them are, are, are prominent um, Jewish members of the cultural elite. So that's part of why there's there's that that moment has been lost. But at the trial itself, it, with the Soviets presented on crimes against humanity in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and Lev Smirnov was the, the Soviet assistant prosecutor who presented that part of the case. 
And if, if anyone can go back, the, the transcript of the trial is available online about Yale University, multiple places, right? The sound recordings have just been released too. Um, and you can go back and you can see, again, all of the evidence that Smirnov introduced. Again, just reports of the Einsatzgruppen, the commanders of the Einsatzgruppen kind of bragging about having fulfilled the, the orders to um, annihilate like almost all of the Jews of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Reports from the Polish government they introduced also, um, one of the reports notes that um, 3 million Jews were, have, been, have been killed, right, um, in Poland. So significant amount of evidence that's still part of the evidentiary record. I think the most powerful part of that Soviet part of the case um, were, was the witness testimony. And the Soviets had sent 10 witnesses to Nuremberg. Two of those witnesses, they ended up sending specifically to talk about um, crimes against humanity focused on, on the Jews. And, and one of those witnesses, basically a witness survivor, witness, of, you know, a, a, someone who had seen a lot was the Yiddish poet Avraham Sutskever, who testifies in the trial. And it's, it's one of those very powerful moments in the trial. Sutskever, we have his diary and in his diary, it's, it's, it's a very powerful diary where he, again, just talks about his diary of the trial and he talks about the journey to Nuremberg and the expectations and, and that he knows that he's going to testify on behalf of the Jewish people and he really feels the weight of this. And Sutskever, I should say, um, one of the things that he, when he was um, in the ghetto in, in Vilna, his um, newborn son was, was murdered in the ghetto hospital by German soldiers. And so at his testimony in Nuremberg, he's one of the, he's the only Soviet witness who remains standing. And he talks about this as that he had remained standing as if saying Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead. And he, he, again, he talks about the Einsatzgruppe and he talks about the massacres. He talks about the pogroms and then he, and he talks um, just, it's, it's, it's very difficult um, to, to read through that testimony um, for, you know, as, as someone doing the research as well. Um, he talks about also the, the murder of, of his son and, and that experience too. So he's you know, one of the two, but it's, 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 I think a very powerful moment of the trial. There were also films, actual films of, of the concentration yes. camps shown. Do we know what the immediate effect in the courtroom was, including on the defendants? Film footage is, is yes, it's, it's, it's quite, graphic and some of the film footages again of the, the liberation of some of the camps and some of the we, we know we do know a bit about what the reactions were in part from journalists who were there and covered it for the newspapers it's always hard to know what that meant they would talk about how the, the defendants turned away from the screen the defendants looked down the defendants like took off their headphones they, they won't look at it right and so I, I don't know what Right. Who knows what they were right feeling, but but clearly it 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 made it made some kind of an impact. It, it made an impact, I would say, though, on and everyone on the other the members of the other delegations as as well, who again agreed that that was that the Soviet case, so the way that that part of the case especially was presented was incredibly powerful. Telford Taylor has um, a memoir about the trials and he really talks a lot about the Soviet presentation of crimes against humanity and the Soviet um, witness testimony. And again, I think was surprised by, by how powerful it was and um, how much evidence they had and how much attention that they gave to those details. 
We're talking with Professor Francine Hirsch. Her book is Soviet Judgment Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. I call the trial the pivot point between World War II and the Cold War. And in fact, one of the formative moments of the Cold War actually happens during the trial when Winston Churchill gives his Iron Curtain speech in March 1946. What was the impact of the Cold War on the trial and of the trial on the Cold War? No, that's a great that's a great question. And it's one of the questions that I kind of was grappling with the book from the start. That was my one of my initial elevator pitches about what the book was going to be about. Right. And so I think, you know, one thing I want to emphasize is that, again, like people have different dates, points in time, which they think, like, when did the Cold War start? Right. And early on in the trials, there are there are definitely tensions among the countries of the prosecution, especially between the Soviets and the Americans. But what I think is is really interesting that up until March, those tensions are mostly kept under wraps. I mean, we know from Jackson's diaries, we know from Jackson's letters that he resented having to work with the Soviets, right? For, for all, all kinds of reasons. He knew about deportations that they were carrying out even as the trial was going on. It's deportations in Poland and deportations in Hungary. But yet they managed to all work together and the prosecution seemed to be like on the same side. But what happens in March, so as you say, um, Winston Churchill gives his you know, so-called Iron Curtain speech in the US. He is not prime minister anymore, former prime minister, but it's significant that he's giving it in like, on US territory, right? And then the very next day is the day that the defense case begins. And as the Soviets, we get this from Soviet memoirs, that as the Soviets then enter the courtroom that morning, they see copies of the US Army newspaper Stars and Stripes that are everywhere in the courtroom, like kind of strewn about and being held up by the defense attorneys. And on the, the big header on it is Unite to Stop the Russians. And Arkady Poltorak, who is one member of the Soviet delegation, writes about this in his memoir. And he says that, that at, the, at this moment, he, it was, he knew that there was a real shift, right? That the mood had shifted, the mood had turned. And again, the timing with the start of the defense case was just like an unhappy coincidence for the Soviets because the defendants at that point, they're, they're, they're loving this, right? And they, they've been trying all along to kind of put the wedge in between the Soviets and the other countries of the prosecution. And at that moment, they really up that effort. They, um, they're, they're on it. And Herman Goering, when he gives his testimony, he spends a lot of time, again, talking about the war, which the Soviets have been calling a war of aggression as a preventive war against the Soviet Union. Ribbentrop, when he gives his testimony, he talks, spends a lot of time talking about the secret protocols. And he, he says, hey, like if, if, if we're guilty of crimes against peace, and certainly the Soviets are too. And, and in some of the correspondence, again, the, as the research part of this that's interesting is we also have these secret telegrams that the members of the Soviet delegation are sending home as the trial is going on. And some of the tele, te, these telegrams from this point, there's um, one person who writes back and says, like, I don't understand what's happening here. That we had come to Nuremberg as victors and suddenly, like we're being cast as like somehow like you know co-conspirators of the Nazis. Like like what's going on? There's also um, an, a very powerful memoir written by one of the Soviet translators, Tatiana Stupnikova, who talks about again some of these moments that I, uh, as well, and just how how shocking it is to her 
um, again, she didn't know about the secret protocols before Nuremberg. And now here she is having to translate information about them in court, right? And she's kind of stumbling along while doing this because of the shock as well. Um, and again, you know, the Soviets had just finished presenting their case before this happened. The, that witness testimony of Avraham Sutskover, the other testimony of crimes against peace, they had left a very powerful impression of what they had been through and what they had suffered. And now here's the defense that's trying to do the best it can with some success to kind of undo that impression that had been left. Is this the moment where they go from having won the war to losing the peace? I think this is the moment where, where it really starts. Yeah, I think this is the moment where it really starts. And I think that, um, again, it's, yes, it's it's through this testimony. It's also through what happens around Katyn as well as part of the defense case. So the defendants, so the Soviets have presented evidence as part of their case on Katyn and the defendants and their attorneys, they then petition the judges and say like, hey, like we'd like to present some evidence about this because this is incorrect. And the Soviets are, they think that this could never happen because like we presented evidence. We presented evidence from our official war crimes commission. There's actually an, an article in the Nuremberg Charter, article 21 that says that, you know, information presented by a war crimes commission is incontrovertible, but like, but what does incontrovertible mean? You know, it turns out that incontrovertible means it can be accepted, but it can still be disputed, right? And so they they allow the defense, um, They and again, Nikachenko is the Soviet judge, he's voted down three to one about a whole number of things during the defense case. And this is one of them where they say, okay, the defendants can bring in three witnesses and the Soviets can have three witnesses too. And, um, and so you have in July, this kind of, you know, battle of the witnesses as it is. And everyone agrees kind of like, it's not clear really. It kind of vanishes, but the, from it's never, Katina is not included in the judgment. But by that point, people think, yeah, the Soviets, you know, probably did it. So I think, yeah, it's with the information about the secret protocols. It's with the information that comes out about Katyn. This is where things shift. And, you know, the other thing is, um, so a couple things. First of all, the trial, everyone had agreed, it's in the Nuremberg Charter, that the trial was just supposed to be about European access crimes. So that, that was from the start. So the Soviets, again, they think from the start, they're gonna be in the clear. Second, Jackson, before the trial started, at Jackson's initiative, the prosecutors had had a discussion. He asked them, like, is there anything we should know? Like, are there, is there anything that might come up during the trial that we should know about so that we know how to deal with it during the trial? He basically is asking for them to kind of come clean about any issues that they think might be an issue, right, that might be a problem. And, um, and so this prompts in Moscow they, they take it as like, oh, we'll have a taboo list, a list of topics that should be stayed away from. And on that taboo list are things like Soviet Union's relationship to Poland and the, the non-aggression pact and all of its parts, you know? And, so, and, of, and of course, like the judges aren't in on that agreement. And, and so what happens is that things in Nuremberg, and again, it's important to emphasize this, things in Nuremberg, they, they stay pretty congenial. And they stay pretty congenial in part because they're in the, all in the courtroom by day. They're all drinking by night. And there are all kinds of parties. And in the, as the weather gets nicer, there's pool parties. And Nikachenko plays tennis with the other judges. And, and so there, it's, things are OK. But back in Moscow, man, they're not happy at all. And I think at this point, Soviet leaders, 
they're really starting to see all of these three to one decisions against Nikachenko. They, they start to see it as part of an Anglo-American plot. And so this is part of the Cold War story in the sense that by the end of the trials, the Soviets are convinced that things have gone against them because of these Cold War tensions that are coming up, of course, in other spheres at this time too. It's not just in Nuremberg, but that's part of their reading of it. And then that also affects their relationship and their attitude towards other international institutions afterwards as well. Understanding Russia and the Soviet Union has been a very large part of your academic life's work. When did you first realize that there was more to the story of Nuremberg and the, what you call the myth of the Nuremberg moment than had been the accepted narrative? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I love that. Some of it is, again, like how it's, I think it's always interesting to think about like how people get to different projects, get to different topics, right? And my way into this topic was partly through the filmmaker Roman Carmen who I had become really interested in. And at first I thought I was going to write something like a project just about Roman Carmen. And Roman Carmen, again, was this amazing filmmaker, documentary filmmaker. He did all these films of the national republics in the Soviet Union. And I had been interested in that for my first project. I found out that Roman Carmen had been at Nuremberg and had made the Soviet Union's like big documentary film about the Nuremberg trials. And I thought that was pretty interesting. And then Aron Trajanin um, was also someone who I had come across at my during my first project because he wrote a number of works about race and genocide. And, and my first book was about nationality problem. And so again, I found out that Aron Trajanin had been at Nuremberg. She was like, huh, Trainin was at Nuremberg, Carmen was at Nuremberg, like who else was at Nuremberg? Like what role did the Soviets have at Nuremberg? And so I, I just became interested in that. And some, again, reading the popular books on Nuremberg and even some of the academic books on Nuremberg, there wasn't much about the Soviets. Actually, interestingly, um, well, David Irving's book on the Nuremberg trials. That was the, one of the first books I noted that had some more talk about the Soviets. And I was like, huh, that's kind of strange. And even like a reference to a Soviet archival source from a Russian. So I was like, what's, what, what is this? Like, what role did the Soviets have? Like, what's the story here? So I went to Moscow and, um, you know, as, as one does to do research <laughs> if you're a Soviet historian. And I, and I started doing research in the archives and, and it was really then that the story started to come together and that I got a sense that, oh, the Soviets, they weren't, um, they weren't just a second bit player here, but they actually had a really important role in the trials as well. So that's, yeah, that was the journey. Uh, apparently, the Soviets were not familiar with the Stringer Bell rule and and took notes on a criminal conspiracy. To talk a bit about what you found in the archives and and the secret telegrams and the encrypted work and and the surveillance reports. And were you surprised at how much documentation there was? I was shocked by how much documentation there was. I was also shocked by just the nature of the sources and how interesting they were, right? I started, um, I worked in, um, in in five different Moscow archives and I started the book doing research in like the, the state the state archive of the Russian Federation. 
And that's where like the transcript of the Nuremberg trials like was stored. But while looking through some of those files, I started to find some of these surveillance reports, right? And that's why I found one of the most interesting, the, the, do the document when I knew I wanted to work on the book, it, it wasn't like the, the high secret stuff. It was the six page report by this journalist editor, Mikhail Dolgopolov was his name. And he was writing back about the terrible housing conditions in Nuremberg. And he was writing back about, again, the problems with the translators. And he was writing back about like anti-Soviet attitudes among people he was meeting in Germany and those kinds of things. And that was really, really interesting. And then, you know, for a while, the most I would say some of the most important documents for the book were from the foreign ministry archive. And it took me quite a while to get permission to work there. So I worked in these in these other archives while I was waiting for permission to work there. And then, and I didn't know if I'd get permission at all. It's very hard to get permission to work in that particular archive. And, and once you get in there, it's one of those archives where they keep the archive guide locked in a glass case that you know, they, they don't give you the key to. So um, <laughs> eventually they, they sort of let me see some, they, they let me see the guide, but you have to go in having a sense of what you want to see. And, and there, um, that, was, that was when I would see these marked up reports. And that was when I would see where I saw a bunch of these telegrams and like all of that, that really detailed information. And some of the, it's like, again, the Soviets had two secret commissions, right? That oversaw what the delegation and some of those secret commissions, some of their reports, they were, I find them in various archives actually, somewhere in the party archive and somewhere in the state archive and there's be some copies. So they were kind of all over the place. And, um, and, and putting some of that together too, that's when you, they would talk about um, like all kinds of problems, like their annoyance at the Americans for trying to hoard evidence. They would talk about the question of which witnesses should they call for to testify about Katyn? Like which witnesses would be the most trustworthy? So, so those kinds of things. So yeah, there's, there's, the archives are really fun and that, that part of the research was great. In the literature and art archive too, that I got to see again, personal papers and diaries of people like Roman Carmen, the filmmaker, the playwright, Vyasevolod Vishnevsky. And again, the, it, you just got a sense of the trial, but just also Nuremberg as this kind of microcosm where all of these people from these countries had been kind of thrown together after the war and how the Soviets were just making sense of that world that they suddenly found themselves in. Given the nature of the Stalinist system at the time, could you necessarily believe that what you read in the archives was true? So I guess it depends on like what kinds of documents, right? I mean, I would say that I think it, the Carmen and Vishnevsky's their letters and you know and their um, people people know who they're writing to. Let's put it that way. So when you read these surveillance reports, when the people are reporting on each other and saying like these people shopped on the black market and right, you know that like that probably happened. But but the fact that it's in a report, it's in a report because they know that someone in Moscow is interested right in in that kind of information. In terms of these the trans of the secret meetings to discuss what's going on in Nuremberg. Those transcripts were pretty um, 
secret, like you had to go through many levels to, to be able to, to look at them. And the Soviets, yeah, they kept those kinds of transcripts. Again, you when anytime you do archival research of any country, but especially probably a state like the Soviet Union, you have to read lots of different documents and read them against each other. And some of what you're trying to figure out, it's not just about truth, right? It's about perspective. It's about like, what did they think was going on? What did they think they needed to report about what was going on? The Katyn stuff, now, now that's a whole different set of questions, right? Because we know that the Soviets had fabricated evidence that was then used at, at Katyn. And, and some of that documentation, like I haven't been able to see, some of that I've had to rely on Russian scholars who are pretty high up, who had managed to get access to it and had managed to get access to it at an earlier time when that wasn't such a controversial issue in Russia. So, so again, in terms of access and the stories that are being told, um, some of that changes over time. Some of the materials that, that I worked with, I did my archival research in the summers of 2005 and 2006. And some of the, the archive, they're called ar ar archival, well, so I'll say some of the collections that I worked in um, have now been closed because the politics have changed. And so you can't get in there now. And so again, it, it just, it, it depends on, on, on the political moment. So that's a pretty good timing for you. It was, it was really, it was really good timing. Yeah. Twelve defendants were sentenced to death. Only ten were hanged because Martin Bormann was tried in absentia, and Hermann Goering committed suicide the night before his scheduled execution. Did they ever determine how he got the cyanide? What I have read is that it seems like an, an American had snuck it into um, his cell. Would that have been intentionally or unintentionally? Because in the in the docudrama starring oh. Alec Baldwin, Gehring is, is friendly with, with his guard and says, oh, would you bring me some personal, and, and, and it's implied that the guard, that the cyanide is in what the guard brings, but it's unclear whether or not the guard knows there's cyanide in there. I don't know much more than that. I, I, yeah, I haven't, um, yeah. This was the only four power trial. There, individual nations would, would hold their own trials but looking at the range of the verdicts and the sentences for the IMT at Nuremberg, was justice done? So that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that I grappled with in this book was this idea of justice, right? Like, what, what is justice? What do we think of as justice? And what did the participants in the tribunal think of as justice? The Soviets did not think justice was done, right? For the Soviets, for justice to have been done, every single, every single defendant would have been hung, right? The Americans, I think, thought that justice was done in the sense that the, the American judges and, and they, they really wanted to go out of their way to give like, every benefit, right, of, of, of doubt and to have a trial that followed rule of law right, as, as closely as possible. And, and again, there's different, for the Soviets, you have to prove your innocence. For the Americans, you have to prove guilt, right? So just in, in that sense. Um, but I don't even feel like I'm qualified to say if justice was done. I feel that it's the people who, again, on Holocaust, you know, the day after Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, people who just, how can justice ever be done, right? What, what, is that, what does that mean for justice to be done in a case like this, right? 
it was a trial. I think that um, they collected significant amount of evidence and, um, and they showed that evidence. They had all of this witness testimony. I think all of that was really positive. It's, it's especially now when there's still efforts to deny the Holocaust, to have, to deny just the extent of what Nazi Germany had done, right? To, to have all of that evidence collected, I think that is one of the most important legacies, I would say, of the Nuremberg trials. I think whether justice was done, that's, it's such an individual question in some ways. And um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I get stuck on that one every time. I get stuck on that one every time. But for all the evidence about the Holocaust, it was only the murders after September 1st, 1939 that counted in That's, yeah, guilty absolutely, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. They, they really, um, and again, that's one of those questions about these competing prerogatives, right? There was this concern to have this trial. There was also a concern about state sovereignty. And part of why they tied crimes against humanity to the war was because of a concern about, well, if you were to try Nazi leaders for crimes committed before the war that were not connected with the war, that were con not connected with the conspiracy, then you're trying leaders of a state for their actions. Now, granted, this was how, this was what was confined within the Nuremberg trial. And I would say it was only the French in these discussions, uh, the four power discussions before the trial started about how to, um, define crimes against humanities. The French were the ones who pushed back against this. The French wanted a broader definition of crimes against humanity. Um, they, uh, the French representative in London where they were working on the Nuremberg Charter, he said that it was would be a travesty, right? To, to not ex have a broader definition. What they were talking about at the time is crimes against civilians and then they, they called it crimes against humanity. It would be a travesty not to have a broader definition that included those crimes that Germany had committed against its own population. And, um, and afterwards, I think it was that desire for to, to push against those boundaries, right? That that's what led to some of the post Nuremberg discussions about genocide and crimes against humanity and, and human rights and, and some of the declarations and legislation that we got in the United Nations. But again, state sovereignty, that's one of those issues that just kept coming up and it still does to this day because you know after Nuremberg, there was an effort to to take these ideas that were in the Nuremberg Charter and the Nuremberg Judgment, and again, like certain that certain crimes were crimes against humanity, and to, to extend it, to take away the idea that it had to be connected to the launching of a war, to hold governments and leaders accountable, right? So there was a big push to do this and to integrate what was called then the Nuremberg Principles into a new international law code and to create a new international criminal court. And it just kept stalling. It kept stalling. And again, it kept stalling because of concerns about state sovereignty. And so even now today, right, this is again to come back when there's, you know, we have it, there's an international criminal court, but some countries don't want to belong to it. Some countries don't want to have anything to do with it. It's it's because of state sovereignty. And I don't, I don't know how you how you get around that. I, I hope at some point states can. What surprised you? in doing the research and writing? So many things along the way surprised me about the project. The, the archival research 
so so much of it was surprising. I mean, it was surprising to me how much documentation there was. It was surprising to me how many members of the Soviet delegation were writing these very detailed reports, like reporting on each other, the kind of self-surveillance that was happening, kind of knew that that kind of thing happened in the Soviet Union, but the extent to which it was exported to, to Nuremberg surprised me. The extent to which the Soviets actually influenced the Nuremberg trials, I didn't know that the that extent going in. Again, the, the power of the Soviet witness testimony, um, I guess, surprised me too. I wasn't I wasn't aware of some of that. Also, the other thing that surprised me when I initially started working on this, I thought that the defense case would just be a chapter, and it ended up being many chapters because I didn't really understand how much happened in the defense case. Right, we like the Nuremberg story. We get mostly the story of the prosecution. We we get about the defendants too, but the, the fact that the defense case went on for so many months and and how much they were able to to say, um, how much free reign they were given, actually that 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 surprised me as well. I was also just again, um, it was an it was an emotional experience working on some parts of the book. And I hadn't really thought about that going in, but especially reading um, some of the depositions, reading witness testimony, part of doing this research meant, you know, watching the films. And that was, that was incredibly hard. And there were certain points when I was working on them, like, why did I choose to work on the Nuremberg trials, right? That somehow I thought that I could write a book about the Nuremberg trials with the Soviets that would just be like this interesting book about the Soviet, but you can't, right? You have to, you have to have, people have to understand like why there's a Nuremberg trials, like why people are there, like what had happened during the war. Yeah, I was surprised, I guess. I probably, I shouldn't have been, and it's silly to have been surprised by it, but I hadn't really, you don't really always realize how deeply into something emotionally you're going to get when you're working on a project. For all the research and writing, are there still any questions you haven't resolved? I feel like I'm done. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those like 15 years later. I'm still there. <laughs> but I, I'm sure that there are a few things that other people can, can work on. I mean, I think, again, um, I, I would like to know more about Stalin and more. I, I would love for there to be some release of documents at some point about, you know, did was what was Stalin saying and thinking about all of this? We, Stalin's presence is there over the whole thing, right? Even when he's not there because he's, you know, he's not in Nuremberg and even when he's like at his dacha, right? Because every, they're, they're, everyone's checking in with him. He's, he's, he's paying attention. And, and there are some moments in the book where um, the Soviet chief prosecutor Rudenko and others, they're back in Moscow, like during the winter break and they're in Stalin's office and they're meeting with Stalin. And we know from Stalin's guest book that they were there. We know from Stalin's guest book how long they were there. We don't know what they talked about. I would love to know what Stalin said to them. I mean, we have a sense from like what happens after the meeting of what he probably said to them. And, and again, like part of doing the research was like reconstructing like what was happening before the meeting, then what shows up in these other party meetings and like, so what gets, gets passed along and how things changed after the meetings with Stalin. Like he, again, clearly gave them orders, but to, to know um, what he said, that would be, um, that would be really something. 
Is the book available in Russia? And if so, how's it been received? So no, it's, I mean, I guess I, I probably could, someone could probably buy it on, like on Amazon, but I, it hasn't, um, so far as I know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure again, how much it's, um, it's, yeah, I'll be really interested in that. I'm hoping that at some point it will be translated into Russian. That would be really great. But you know, in Russia right now, it's really interesting. Just a, a few days ago, there's big Putin keeps making these, these like the equivalent of executive orders that basically say like you cannot talk about what the Soviets did in the same way that you talk about what the Nazis did, and that it, it's illegal to do so. So and Katyn is one of those things where again they kind of acknowledged it and now they don't like to talk about it and and the secret protocols again it's one of those difficult questions and not scholars i mean scholars in russia there's they're interested in these questions and they talk about those questions but in terms of the official narrative um so i i wonder how the book would be received because on the one hand, it, it puts the Soviets into the picture in, in a way that in, in the West, they weren't there before. And I think it appreciates their contribution. And, and I have a lot of empathy for what the Soviets had suffered right in, in the war. I, I certainly do. And especially during, during the occupation. On the other hand, um, it's pretty like, clear eyed, I think, about again, Soviet expectations in terms of thinking about a show trial, about the problems of Stalinism, about the secret protocols, about Katyn. And so it's, again, that that balance. So I don't, I don't know, I'll be really curious though, once, um, yeah, once it is available there. Probably half of it will be translated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Finally, 75 years later, what is the legacy of the International Military Tribunal? I think one of the important legacies is the historical record that it that it produced, the fact that we have all of this information. I think in terms of thinking about the, the Nuremberg story, right? Like we, we still like to hold up the story of the Americans. I think if we, I think it would be good to expand that and really think more about the four power cooperation that was involved in the trial. And, um, and have that be part of the legacy that we appreciate more. I think there's, there are a lot of lessons there about ways in which you can cooperate and ways in which maybe you don't want to, right? Um, where you hold the moral line. And um, I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the things that I, I certainly thought a lot about as, as, I, was, as I was working on, on the book. I think again, you know, we we have this Nuremberg myth still, the, the myth of the Nuremberg moment, and and I think the Nuremberg moment that like there it, it was like it really did open the way for um, new ideas and legislation about crimes against humanity and human rights and thinking about genocide, and that is all a, a very important part of of the Nuremberg of its legacy. Again, the part of the legacy is, is also a way in which the Cold War and ideas of human rights became entangled with each other. And that's part of the legacy that we, we don't talk about as much either. And I think we need that story too, to understand not just what Nuremberg was able to accomplish and what was able to be accomplished in Nuremberg's name after the trials, but also to be able to understand where Nuremberg and it's and the principles fell short. That that question of state sovereignty that came up, I think that's in part because of 
this mistrust um, from Nuremberg and the Cold War becoming so intertwined. And I, I think that's part of the legacy too. I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave it because that is all the time we have with Professor Francine Hirsch. Again, the book is Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. It's from the good people at Oxford University Press, and it's the best kind of history. Really well written about something that happened a while ago, but is still relevant today. Next week on Mass and Bookbeat, another award-winning member of the UW community, Professor Paige Glotzer discussing her book, Segregating the Suburbs, The Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890 to 1960. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT. 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.